Welcome to The Sword and the Trowel, a podcast of Founders Ministries. Founders Ministries exists for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of churches. I'm Jared Longshore. And I'm Tom Askell. Thanks for listening to The Sword and the Trowel today. Uh, a big thanks to our fam members. Thanks for your encouragement and support. Uh, we have a new book coming out, which we are very excited about, called By What Standard? God's yeah. World, God's Rules. We like that title because yeah. we already have a synodoc. Yeah, and if you've watched the movie, you watch the film, you need to read the book. I was talking to a seminary president yesterday, I hadn't even told you this, who is ordering books for that book for all of his students in the seminary. Stop it. That's the truth. One yeah. of the Southern Baptist seminaries? N- no. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> it, oh, okay. It is a, uh, it is a wonderful Bible-believing seminary. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm not suggesting anything other than the fact it is a wonderful Bible-believing okay. seminary. Right. Okay. And he wanted to, he said, would this be a helpful book? It sounds like it would. And he said, you know, where does it, how does it fit in in relationship to the film you guys produced? I said, man, this is like an extension of the arguments from the film. And so, for example, you got three chapters by Vody Balkum mm-hmm. where he just takes off on the part of the interview that we clipped into the synodoc. So anyway, that book is on sale and for the next few weeks at least for $11. That's a pre-pub price, and so I forget what the regular price is, but that is a really good deal on it. encourage you to go to founders.org, look at the book in the bookstore, and order a copy for yourself and your favorite seminary. Yes, and we also have the Wield the Sword project coming up, so uh, thank you for your prayer and encouragement and support for that project. Uh, we've got a few of the episodes under our belt, and they're in post-production, so uh, continue to pray for that and be uh, keeping an eye out for Wield the Sword. We are uh, very excited about this particular podcast because we have Allie Beth Stuckey, a fellow Texan with Tom Askell. Although Tom has been in Florida, Allie, for uh, 30-something years now, he still talks to me constantly about Texas. So it must be a wonderful place (laughs) to live. It is. It is. I would have to agree. I was born and raised in Texas. I I left for college and lived in the Southeast for a few years. Um, But Texas is just, it's just the place to be. Although I would say that Florida comes in, I don't know if I can say second, (laughs) but maybe third or fourth. If I had to pick the States that I would live, we were just in Florida for vacation and um, it's a good place. Now I tell everybody this Allie, but um, central Florida away from Orlando is very much like Texas. I don't know where you were, but I grew up in Central Florida, and and that is a wonderful, conservative uh, place to be. The coast is totally different. So uh, check out Central Florida somewhere away from Orlando next time that you're in if you haven't been there. (laughs) You know, it's funny because Central California, I would say, is the is the same way. You go to Central California and it's just this bubble of conservatism. And they're like, if we could just get rid of San Francisco and L.A., that would be awesome. So, well, you know, I don't know. Y'all can just come to Texas if things start to go south in those places. Yeah, we're, I guess. we're probably making our plane tickets <laughs> right no, now. No, no, no. We'll be doing by caravan. Um, but this is a good, good conversation to have because, you know, if, if we do have to see a uh, separation of the states, then I want Florida and Texas to be on the same team and we can do that establish a new republic yes well Allie thank you so much for being with us today and we kind of wanted to talk about a number of things maybe we want to get started with your book you have a book coming out is it in August 
I do. It's August 11th. It was actually supposed to come out in May, but with the coronavirus and all of this craziness, we were like, oh, you know, nothing's going to happen between, you know, May and August. Things will just be calm by then. It'll be a great time for a book to come out. It will be fine, of course. God is in control, and that's the time that it was supposed to come out in the first place. Uh, but it just has been a reminder, the whole process of this book coming out, it's been a reminder of just the things that we cannot predict and cannot know, but it is coming out August 11th, no matter what happens in the next month. Uh, so hopefully that release date works out. So tell us, Allie, uh, why is it that in writing this book, you think that you're enough and you want to encourage people to love themselves as much as they can? Oh my goodness. That is false advertising. <laughs> Some people are going to listen to this and be like, why does you have to throw on? All right, let me so, correct it. Let me correct to, it. All right. The, the name of the book. Just to clarify, how to, just how to, to correct the record. Um, the book is called You're Not Enough and That's Okay, Escaping the Toxic Culture of Self-Love. Oh, I misread so, you, wait, wait, sorry, wait. I'm not supposed to love myself. I, I, I love I, loving myself and I need help to love myself. I need help to love you too. That's <laughs> Exactly. That's the, that's the issue. Um, so the book probably sounds offensive to a lot of people. The idea that you're not enough, it might sound like I'm encouraging people to self-loathing or self-deprecation. And of course, that is not the point of the book at all. And I hope the parenthetical part of that title, that it's okay, kind of shows people uh, the direction that the book is going to take. The book goes through five myths that are common, especially to women, not just in secular culture, but also, unfortunately, in women's ministry. So some of those myths are that you are enough, that you have to love uh, yourself before you can love other people, that you determine your own truth, that you are entitled to your dreams. Um, so just this idea that you are the center of your own universe, that you determine what is and what isn't, what's good and what's bad based on what you feel and that your happiness is the chief goal in all things that you do, that you're perfect the way that you are, all of this nonsense that unfortunately a lot of women are being fed on a daily basis. And again, the point of the book is not to go through these myths and to say, well, actually you think that you're great, but you're awful. It is to show that this idea uh, that you are the center of your universe and that your love for yourself is sufficient for you or that your self-fulfillment or self-affirmation or self-empowerment is going to lead you down a road of confidence and success um, is a lie, that mm. it actually leads you to a dead end because you are carrying this responsibility to be your own satisfaction, to be your own arbiter of truth that you are not made nor expected to carry. And so the burden of that, of being your own God, of being your own source of satisfaction um, is actually too heavy for us to carry. And it might sound empowering and freeing, but actually it ends up uh, crushing us. And what I noticed, how I kind of got into this topic and researching this is that I I noticed this uh, language, this rhetoric of just love yourself, you are enough, all of this stuff coming from these self-love gurus, primarily on Instagram. Um, and what I noticed about their own lives is that they left a wake of failed relationships and um, depression, anxiety, and uh 
dissatisfaction and unhealthy uh, situations in their own lives. And yet they were turning around to other people and saying, if you follow me and you follow my 10 step program and read my book about loving yourself, you'll finally be happy and be satisfied when they had nothing to show for their own philosophy. And so I noticed as I talked to other people who had you know, at, at one point followed these self-love gurus and tried to, um, you know, ascribe their rules for life to their own life, that it ends uh, at a dead end. It ends in disappointment. It ends in dissatisfaction. It ends in heartbreak. It ends with the realization. People come to this realization on their own. Hang on. I'm not actually enough. I'm waking up every day and telling myself that I am. I'm I'm waking up every day and repeating these motivating mantras about how awesome I am. And not only do I not feel that way most of the time, uh, but it's not helping my life. It's not helping me be more successful or confident. So um, it's releasing women from the burden of being their own God and directing our focus toward God and his truth and realizing that he has already offered himself as the satisfaction and the fulfillment that we're looking for. Well, a thousand amens to that, Ali. I'm fascinated by the the points that you laid out. They all sound uh, important. And, and just a testimony, my wife recently pointed out to me, I guess one of these love, self-love guru couples that have published, a, I think, some books and are quite popular and proclaim Christianity, and I think they're getting divorced. And even in their getting divorced, they're still portraying, they're still trying to maintain all of the things that they've been saying and maintain their Christianity. And it was, it was deeply concerning to me about young, the younger generation that might be looking at this and thinking that this is uh, at all in step with um, a Christian understanding of how to live in the world. Um, so it seems very, very relevant. Oh, I'd like to double click on one of the things you mentioned. You, one of the points you said is kind of creating your own truth or building your own truth. I was recently reading a book by uh, Gene Veith. Uh, it's called Post-Christian, and he started using the word constructivism. That's the first time I've heard the word, but it was the basic idea of, you know, you are going to construct your own reality. You're going to build your own truth. Um, we're pastors. A lot of pastors listen to this podcast, and we want to shepherd the millennial generation particularly well. And uh, how do you see that generation um, portraying this idea of constructivism or creating their own reality, building their own truth? How do you see them doing it? And then how do you think they got there? Mm-hmm. So one thing that I talk about in the book is the cult of self-affirmation. And that is kind of what, it's another name for the toxic culture of self-love, which is in the byline. And this might sound like a paradox, but it's really kind of a ubiquitous cult. So it's everywhere, but there are membership standards that you have to check off before you can actually get in the cult. And they're all surrounded uh, by this idea of self-affirmation. And two of the values that you have to latch onto to join this cult of self-affirmation are autonomy and authenticity. So in the cult of self-affirmation, those are the two highest values that exist. Authenticity, being unabashedly yourself, doing whatever you feel, saying whatever you want to say, being whoever you want to be, identifying however you want to identify, and then autonomy. So uh, controlling your own body as, for example, the pro-choice activists would say, um, again, kind of doing what you want to do and being in control of your own life. And the God in the in the cult of self-affirmation is the God of self, and its two highest values are these things, authenticity and autonomy. When those are your two highest values, and when they're not subjected um, 
to the truth of God's word and to um, the objective truth that God gives us, uh, then you are going to go down the path of determining your own truth. Authenticity and autonomy are not bad things, but when they're not subjected to the objective truth of God's word, then they are going to lead you down the road of moral relativism. And I don't know if that necessarily explains how we got there, but that is kind of the mindset a lot of a lot of the people in the cult of self-affirmation. They are primarily valuing their own autonomy, their own authenticity above anything else. And so they believe that they have the authority to determine their own truth and to determine their own morality. This idea of my truth or your truth kind of started as a way to describe someone's own experiences. So maybe they dealt with trauma or maybe they were abused. It was their kind of testimony. They were saying my truth. But what has happened is that my truth has come to describe not just one's personal experiences that they really had in their lives, um, but also the, the moral conclusions they are making based on their experiences. And so if something is my truth or your truth, then you can't argue against it because it's both mine and my truth. When you personalize something like truth, it makes it inarguable. And I think in a day and age when we are offended by everything, when we're offended by dialogue, when we're offended by debate, my truth is a way to kind of insulate us from criticism or from someone saying, hey, what you're doing is not right. I think that this is a product of a lot of different things. There are a lot of different factors that have kind of brought millennials and I would say Generation Z, because remember, a lot of millennials are old. Some millennials, you know, they're, I don't mean old, yeah, but they're old compared to how people think of them as they're 40. Um, so they're not, you know, they're not teenagers. A lot of Generation Z thinks this way too. I think, you know, some of it obviously has to just do with who they are, how old they are. Some of it has to do with parenting, uh, a lack of equipping from churches, a lack of education by um, public education and just education in general. The idea that everyone gets, you know, your own trophy, that you are perfect and special the way that you are, that you're the center of your own universe. And that if anyone doesn't validate your feelings and your emotions, then they are bigoted. They are wrong. You have um, this idea that your all of your feelings are valid and true and should be affirmed is something that is very popular among young people. And I think all of these different factors have contributed to this idea of uh, my truth, my inarguable truth. Mm. And if you try to argue against my truth, um, then you're not only bigoted, but as we have seen a lot of activists say over the past few weeks, that it's actually a form of violence against me. Um, and I, I saw someone on Twitter saying this, it's a very dangerous place to be when, uh, if you give empathy in place of the truth, when empathy is not subjected to truth and facts, it is just coddling and it's affirming fears that are not based on reality, which is not loving at all. It, it's very similar to, for example, if you know, your child comes downstairs and they say, you know, mom, I'm, I'm so scared. There's a monster in my closet. And instead of going upstairs and saying, okay, let's, you know, let's go upstairs, sweetie. Let's turn on the lights. Let's look in your closet. Look, there's no monster in your closet. Let's pray. Whatever. That's what a loving parent would do. Um, but what we're seeing is we, uh, instead of doing that, you know, metaphorically, we are saying, you know what, there is actually a monster in your closet. You are absolutely right about that. And you have every reason to be scared because there probably is a monster in your closet if you 
feel that it is. So that's kind of what we've done, I think, with the younger generation is that we've affirmed all of their feelings without um, being willing to kind of confront them with truth. And so they have all claimed my truth, my autonomy, my authority, um, my authenticity, and they're not willing to be corrected or to be rebuffed. Yeah, that's great, Allie. And um, I, I understand this in the world, you know, the, the people that are separated from God and, and don't have uh, access or don't seek the access that they do have to the ways of God, the word of God. But to see this stuff in the church is just so distressing because it, it seems like it completely ignores two fundamental realities that the Bible sets forth in the opening chapters. One, that God is the creator. This is his world. He is the authority. And so all the things that we want to claim about truth and right and wrong and good and bad come from him. So we reject that. But then the other thing is Genesis 3, sin. That sins come into the world has affected me. So whenever I, people say, well, I just got to be true to me. And that means I got to give in to all my sin and don't you dare tell me that this is bad for me, that I'm, you're trying to keep me from being authentic. You're killing me. You're, you're doing violence to me. And the church seems ill-equipped right now in many places to address this. And it, it just grieves me. And one of the things that we've been trying to do at Founders for a long time is to call the church back to just some basic understanding of what the Word of God actually does say and it all begins with Genesis 1-1. So in your generation, I do think the church, in many respects, we have to own the responsibility that, that we have not taught mm -hmm. the word of God simply, straightforwardly. What are you finding with uh, maybe especially young women that you relate to? Uh, how do they, uh, some of those who have been entrapped in this wrong way of thinking have just been swept along by the, the cultural mores of their day as they begin to have the truth dawn on them. What have you found to be helpful in encouraging that and, and trying to teach them and get them to uh, stop and reconsider the way that they've been living? What, what do you, what do you do? So one thing that I found when I started my podcast, so I got into this career by talking about the importance of just kind of being involved in politics. I started doing what I do back in 2015 when I went to sorority houses and told them the importance of, of voting in the 2016 election. And I did it from a nonpartisan perspective. And then the longer I did that, the more kind of my, uh, my true conservatism started to come out. And then the longer I was talking about politics and when the election was over, I realized the real problem is not political ignorance. It's not political apathy. That's not the reason that young women in particular, and I'm sure this is true of young men too, but that's not necessarily a demographic that I know or relate to, but um, that they don't know what's going on and they don't know how to fit what's going on into their worldview is not primarily a political problem. It's a theological problem. Mm -hmm. They don't understand how to build a biblical worldview in the first place, and so they're not really bothering getting involved in different aspects of civic discourse because they don't have a worldview from which to to from which to work and especially true of Christian young women and I would put myself in the category of a lot of these Christian young women that was not I wasn't taught theology when I was in high school and, and going to youth group and that's not to knock you know everything I learned or every youth group pastor that I had but it really wasn't until I would say I don't know junior or senior year I just 
happened to have a wonderful Bible teacher in uh, in school who really challenged us all to think about the Bible more critically than we ever had and to read it for ourselves and to read people like C.S. Lewis and um, other and reformed theologians that I had never heard of in my life. And so I'm very thankful for that. But I look at that was at school. I look at what I learned at church and I wasn't learning anything like that. I wasn't learning at all how to think critically about the world or how to think critically about the Bible or how to read the Bible or how to build a biblical worldview. And so I realized that as I was in this career, that a lot of uh, young women were in the same place that I was, and they maybe never did have a Bible teacher or a mentor or anyone push them to think critically about their worldview or to read the Bible seriously or to care about theology at all. And so that's when I would say in 2016, 2017, I started talking about um, theology more, started talking about the importance of a biblical worldview more to my uh, female audience. And what I found, and I hope this is encouraging to you guys, and maybe you've seen this as well, and encouraging to the audience is that young women are really hungry for this. I know we see predominantly young women kind of attach themselves to maybe the more prosperity, feel good, even social justice pastors. And of course, that's true, but there are a lot of young women that are hungry for the truth of God's word, that want to know more about the Bible, that want to know how to read the Bible, how to study the Bible, what God's nature means for their lives and means for how they see things. I mean, I just get hundreds and hundreds of messages now and emails asking about uh, the different perspectives that the Bible has on different political issues or uh, what a particular politician said or uh, what the future is going to look like if Democrats win, if Republicans win and things like that. So there are a lot of young women that are very curious, very hungry, especially right now as we're looking out our window and seeing so much chaos and we're seeing the godless postmodern view play out. There are a lot of women that are saying, hang on, I don't like that mm. and I don't know how to combat it. I don't know how to teach my children how to combat it. And I don't know the first thing about protecting myself and my family um, from this encroaching darkness that seems to be, you know, on my doorstep. So a positive thing is that I'm seeing a lot of urgency, especially young moms, to understand the Bible, to understand how to build a biblical perspective, how to teach their children theology, um, how to teach their children about the word of God. There's a lot of urgency, more than I have ever seen, um, of young women and especially young moms to uh, know the gospel mm. and to know God's word and to advance God's kingdom. And so that's something that I'm seeing. It's very encouraging to me, even though, it, you know, we do, we look around and we're very discouraged by people rejecting God's standard, rejecting, like you said, God's authority over the heavens and the earth that he created. But behind the headlines, there are a lot of young Christians, a lot of young women, a lot of young people in general that are hungry for truth, hungry for stability, hungry for um, hungry for a, a firm foundation of God's word. So that is what I'm seeing right now. Ali, let's pick up this idea of autonomy. You've referenced that a couple times, and uh, I'm seeing a lot of that too and concerned about it. Um, I was talking to, or I've counseled some people that are single and some, some males that are single, particularly, uh, that have asked about, you know, what, what's the church doing for singles? And one of the things that clicked in my head when I was talking with, um, a man about this as a single man who was older, I was thinking about the responsibility of a man to provide, to protect, to lead and seeing, um, 
how much how much he had, how much capacity he had, being he did not have a wife to provide for, or children to provide for, and how he could have used that energy for the church. And had he used that energy for the church, he would likely be much more connected. But this this idea of autonomy or independence um, can do damage. It can do damage to uh, in, in the home. The idea of autonomy it can do damage in the church. The idea of autonomy, and it can do damage in the in the world as well. So what are some ways that you try to counsel um, other other ladies, be they in the church or not, how, how do you show them the dangers of autonomy in those three spheres? And then how would you encourage them to reject that, to work against it? What does it look like for a Christian woman to reject autonomy in the home, in the church, and in the world? Yes. So even those who are single are still called to submission, obviously, as you and I know, but I think that's something a lot of uh, single women forget that I am single so that I can go out and do the things that I want to do and pursue the things that I want to pursue. And that's not to say that if you're single, you can't necessarily, you know, have a career and do some of the things that you want to do, but that is not your primary purpose or even the primary benefit of singleness. As we read in the Bible, that the benefit of singleness, if you are, as Paul is, is to dedicate yourself more to ministry, that it is actually a blessing. As you said, that you have the capacity, you have the energy, you might even have, uh, you know, more resources than you would if you had children to be able to dedicate to the church. So I think we have to remember that even if you are unyoked from a husband, that you are still yoked to the Lord, that you are yoked to the church and that your energy and your resources, the extra energy and resources that you have that you maybe wouldn't have if you were married are to be uh, dedicated in service to the Lord are to be dedicated to the church. And that is the primary benefit, not um, traveling, not being able to work longer hours. I'm not saying that traveling is bad, but I'm saying that's not the primary benefit to your singleness. And of course, as a married woman, and I know this is this is difficult to hear, even I think for Christian women, that the Bible is very clear, of course, about us um, submitting to um, our husbands as to the Lord, which is a very big responsibility, as is the responsibility that the husband has to love uh, his wife, even as he loves himself. And the reason why that's difficult, I think, for a lot of women to hear is because this idea of submitting it brings to mind, it conjures images, I guess, you know, from Satan himself of slavery, of oppression, of, uh, you know, a lack of liberation and, you know, groveling before a master when, of course, that is not the picture that the Bible depicts at all. Um, but the reason why that's important is for exactly the reason that God tells us, because when we are submitting to our husband, we are submitting as to the Lord. That is true of all the dichotomies in those chapters of Ephesians and Colossians, that it is not just for the sake of submission, it is for the sake of the glory of the Lord. Um, and I think that's important for us to keep in mind, just as the Bible tells us in everything that we do, whether we eat or drink, to do it all for the glory of God. So um, I think that's that's the important that's the important mindset that we need to have, not just following the rules, but doing everything that God tells us to do because he is good. We know his ordering is good. Uh, we know submission according to God's law is good. And it's all for his glory. And that should, of course, be our chief goal. You know, one thing, Allie, that you've uh, touched on, I'd like to circle back to and put a finer point on it. Uh, we're getting a lot of requests now from people that are very disturbed over the churches and, you know, um, every week and multiple times a week 
Uh, our church seems to be going woke. Our church seems to be uh, following along with the ideologies that we're very concerned about. And we need another church. We're looking for a church. And, of course, we have some resources at founders.org to connect people with churches, at least as a starting point. But what would you say to um, uh, young women uh, your age about looking for a church? What should they look for in a church if, if they're wanting to avoid and, and all that's going on in the culture and being swept up in it and wanting to grow in the way that you articulated earlier by this Bible teacher at the school you went to? What, what things would you say? Here's what you need to look for in a church. Here are things you need to be aware of and, and guard against falling into in a church. I get this question all the time as well. And I actually direct people to founders.org and the church finder application that you guys have, because I think that it is so helpful. And of course, I trust founders to be able to at least, you know, lead people in in the right direction um, for for their churches. And so I hope people do take advantage of that. I've, get, I've gotten a lot of messages like that, not just over the past few years, but especially over the past few weeks that said, you know, I thought that I was going to a gospel preaching, Bible believing church. And now all of a sudden my pastor is going off the map and he is recommending, for example, white fragility. He is recommending atheistic resources, Marxist resources uh, for the problem of racism, for the problem of discrimination and injustice and things like that. What do I do? And I have encouraged some people like I have a friend, for example, who's pastor. It's a branch of what would have been considered a reformed, solid evangelical church at one point in Texas. It was a branch of that church that kind of broke off and he was recommending, you know, white fragility. He was recommending Tennessee quotes. He was recommending only far left uh, resources, secular resources, and some Christian resources, but the secular resources were all all far left on the issue of racism and things like that. And I just helped her um, kind of talk through what she wanted to say to her pastor. And she did end up having a dialogue with her pastor about this. And so if that is something that um, young couples, that young women who are listening to this feel comfortable doing, maybe meeting with the pastor and his wife and talking about these things and saying, okay, let's go back to the scriptures and see what scripture says and offering your perspective. It would be awesome if your pastor is receptive to that kind of conversation. And of course, it, it also, it, it depends. If your pastor is basically preaching Marxism, is going off the map of scripture, if you're listening to a sermon that has nothing to do with God's word and nothing to do with the gospel as the answer for all isms and all hate, um, then that is a really big problem. But maybe if you are just uncomfortable with some of the language that your pastor is using around so-called racial reconciliation, or you just weren't sure about a resource that he offered, then that just might be a time for a conversation and better understanding that might not mean that you need to leave right away. But if you are at a church that a pastor is not preaching an expository sermon, so if you don't have to follow along in your Bible when your pastor is preaching, if he's basically saying, this is the topic, this is what I want to say, and I might find some verses to be able to fit into this topic that actually have nothing to do with this topic, that's obviously a problem, probably has been a problem for a long time. If that's the kind of church that you're going to, that would be a reason to leave. If you have a church or a pastor or people in leadership who don't believe that the gospel is the only and the ultimate solution for what ails the human spirit. If the gospel is not being preached from the pulpit um, as the solution or just period, then that's obviously a reason to leave. There are unfortunately a lot of women's ministries that otherwise 
I would say solid churches that are leading women astray by saying, hey, you know, we're going to walk through white fragility together. We're going to walk through these atheistic left wing resources as a way to, quote, get us closer to God when it comes to issues of racism. That's absolute nonsense. Those people don't need to be teaching at all. They don't need to be in leadership at all. That would either be a reason to leave or at least confront your pastor, talk to your pastor about the problems um, that are going on. So it's hard to say, you know, one one rule or even two rules about what people should, um, you know, why people should leave their church because there are so many different situations where it might be merited. Um, but I would say, you know, obviously ask God for wisdom. If it's not expository preaching, that's a problem. If they're not preaching the gospel, if they're not looking to God's word for the answers to the problems that the world is facing, those are all um, issues. And we could get into so many different kinds of examples of that. I talk about in my book, Hipster Jesus, Hipster Christianity, which basically depicts Jesus as someone who doesn't care about sin and just wants you to feel good about yourself. And then there's obviously the prosperity gospel, which says, you know, if you do these things for God, then as a transaction, he's going to do something for you. Those are obviously two red flags as well. Amen. Well, Allie Beth, it's been wonderful to have you on the podcast, and I hope and pray that you're able to continue to uh, spread the good truth that you are spreading. We're looking forward to this book coming out in August, uh, How to Love Yourself and Follow Your Dreams. You're not enough, and that's okay. Escaping the Toxic Culture of Self-Love. We want to get that straight. That's the title. That's the title. That's the title. Let me yes, say, I, I know. Just, it can be very confusing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I, I noticed this morning that if you pre-order the book from Amazon that you can write is it Penguin? Is that the publisher? Whoever the pub? Yes. Yeah, that they yes. will send you an excerpt in a PDF file so you can get a little foretaste of uh, what the book is about. Allie, before we let you go, I'm sorry to spring this on you. I didn't ask you before. Could we have five more minutes of your time? Only five? Is that okay? Sure. Because sure. what we we have the armory for those who are part of our Founders Alliance membership. We have this kind of uh, portal where people can get extra content. And I actually have a, uh, an interesting question, uh, maybe a tougher question, but I, I'm fascinated. I would love to hear you speak to how to be a Christian woman in the world. We often talk about being a Christian woman uh, in the home. You're a wife and a mother and Christian woman in the church. You're a faithful church member. But then you've been very active in speaking to political issues, cultural issues, and just five minutes in the armory if you'd be willing to talk about how to be a Christian woman in the world, I think a lot of people would love to hear that. Oh, this could last, uh, this could last a very long time. I have a lot to, I have a lot to say about that. So as you said, I am a wife and a oh, mom. Wait, 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 Sorry. wait, wait, wait. We got to, we got to oh. sign off we're, the podcast. We're so we got to take you, we got to go into the armory. We got to go into the armory. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. No, no, that's okay. Oh, I thought that you wanted me to go right there. Well, no. everyone just got a, a sneak peek of that's what I'm going to say. So hopefully that encourages extra content. <laughs> Uh, thank All you so much, Allie. We appreciate your time and appreciate your life and ministry. Greetings to your husband and your daughter. And uh, we just pray the Lord will continue to bless and use you in wonderful ways. Amen. Thank you.